Welcome to Mintenberg, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're speaking with distinguished Professor Jason Potts, Professor Sinclair Davidson, and Dr. Darcy Allen from the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub on grants, foundations, and treasury management. Welcome to all of you. Hello. Hello. So you've recently written a collection on a better design for DeFi grant programs and deciding how to spend your treasury. Jason and Sinclair, uh, you've previously also written a lot on the economics of funding public goods and grants. Why is this a hard problem? Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. I'm glad you asked that. So um, the, the, the whole question of the provision the provision of public goods or, the, or just providing infrastructure for our community is one of these things that economists have been obsessed with forever. Um, it's a hard problem because, I mean, the, the basic problem is the free rider problem, that you're providing something where everyone benefits and you need some mechanism to ensure that everyone sort of contributes to that, to that thing. And what has resulted is a bunch of different mechanisms um, that at one extreme range from um, you know, the, the government's method, which is just, it's the law, you have to pay your taxes or you have to contribute. You use, you use force or, or a compulsory mechanism to ensure compliance. To all sorts of other um, relatively sophisticated incentive designed mechanisms to ensure people contribute and benefit from, from what they're receiving. So um, what that means is that it's a, there's a lot of opportunity for, action, for, for mechanism design or designing clever institutions to try and solve this problem um, at the level of a nation state, at the level of a firm, level just sort of wherever, wherever you find this. So um, economists have, have long been interested in this, I think. Yeah, so this is the, the, the big thing. I mean, as, as a community, we've been arguing for, for probably thousands of years as to who does what, when, and how. Um, how do you share the, the, the benefits of the community? How do you make sure everybody pulls their weight? Um, so if, if you think of human activity, it's always been cooperation under the division of labor. But of course, you have free riders and you have people who want to do a little bit more, people who want to do a little bit less, and so on and so forth. So how do you coordinate activity towards some common goal? Now, what we've seen in the last 10 few uh, or so years is this new community uh, coming up, the, the, the blockchain community. And what has happened in the blockchain community is that there is this big push for decentralization. Now, historically, the, the response to free rider problems and monitoring problems and cooperation has been centralization. So we have this big decentralization push on. And I think for a while there, a lot of people thought that we could radically decentralize human cooperation and not, <clears throat> pardon me, and not have to worry about the provision of these so-called public goods where everybody benefits. Um, and in the last couple of years, let's say, or let's say four years even, people have suddenly realized that we do need some sort of governance mechanism, some sort of way of cooperating. And unfortunately, what, what I think has happened in, in the community is a lot of people have sort of tried to reinvent the wheel. Whereas in actual fact, we have got hundreds, if not thousands of years of, of models, of ideas, of proposals, where people have tried out different mechanisms of cooperating. Now, we've got two mechanisms broadly defined right now. We've got a political mechanism where we have a one-person, one-vote system where everybody is, is weighted equally, and we vote from time to time on things, which has been the mechanism that has been mostly adopted in the blockchain space because that's what most people are familiar with. And then we also have corporate governance mechanisms where you have weighted voting and you have executive committees and you have all sorts of separations of powers and so on, um, which sometimes mimic the political system and sometimes don't. And so what we've been doing in, in the Blockchain Innovation Hub over the last while is thinking through which of these mechanisms, the political mechanisms, the corporate governance mechanisms, better apply in the blockchain space. Now, sometimes it's a political mechanism that works better. Sometimes it's a corporate governance mechanism that works better. And, and the challenge for us is looking at the, the wealth of human experience 
and at the same time trying to apply them to a this new technology which industrializes trust something we've never seen before so this new technology that industrializes trust and at the same time has this very strong decentralization ethos and that's actually been quite challenging but nonetheless at the same time very interesting Jason? I think if you just come on over the top of it, I mean, I think that the distinction between corporate governance mechanisms and political mechanisms is one huge classification distinction. But the other, the other way to, the other, in addition to that, what we've also got is this kind of governments doing taxation and spending systems. Um, then we've got prizes. Um, you know, um, we can post a prize for someone to solve a problem and whoever solves the the, you know, the public goods provision problem, we need a, a something. Um, and whoever does that gets a prize. Um, we can use grants-based mechanisms where we, we, we create a, a, a pool of money, we get together a committee, we invite people to tender to build the thing, and then we award, a, I mean, or, or, or we um, award them to that. So there's, there's a whole lot of different mechanisms by which we can achieve that. And some of those can be implemented politically, other ones can be implemented sort of corporate mechanisms so just this enormous rich um sort of space of possible mechanisms to solve these problems of how do we build um, common pool resources or public goods for a local community and this is a this is a huge problem that we just see everywhere and i think what a lot of um a lot of the challenge comes from the fact that we just tend to assume there's relatively small number of ways of doing it when the key sort of you know starting point of this is to recognise that there's a huge variety of mechanisms that could possibly work, um, which ones work will depend on the specific institutional, environmental, information, just you know a lot of ad hoc conditions of a particular thing, and this this choice problem is hard because of that. And and the the thing that I find so exciting in this particular space is that there are very often there may be historical attempts to do things that have failed simply because we couldn't simultaneously solve a trust problem. Whereas now, a lot of the trust problem is already solved. Not all of it, but a lot of the trust problem has been solved. And so um, a lot of mechanisms which may have failed in the past may now succeed. So in actual fact, it throws up the entire wealth of human history and experience at trying to work together to achieve common goals. All of that has now been opened up. And so we should be thinking very broadly around what will work going forward. Because since the Industrial Revolution, we have been sort of very much tied into a very strong centralization ethos and massification ethos. Um, whereas with uh, uh, the blockchain environment, we don't have to go down those routes. We can actually design very specific local solutions that rely on local knowledge. Um, which we haven't necessarily been able to do before, and we may be able to do that at scale um, going forward. So it's incredibly exciting, and it's, it's actually a bit limiting that a lot of people just think of, oh, let's try and apply modern politics to the solution now, when in actual fact we've got so much more uh, to hand that we can actually use. So I really like this idea of drawing on existing principles of either political systems or corporate governance to think about how we solve public goods challenges in digital spaces. And from what you've said, you're saying that blockchain as a you know public decentralized technology actually enables some of these theoretical approaches to work in practice. So how do you go about determining which approaches apply in what situations? Well, so far we have leaned into where our own personal interests and, and, and knowledges are. So um, I've come at this from a corporate governance perspective where I've actually done a lot of my thinking over time and fiscal policy perspective where I've done a lot of my prior research. Uh, Jason has come at this from a more innovation economics perspective. Uh, Darcy has come from this from a more political economy perspective. Um, our colleague Chris Berg has come from this from a political policy perspective. And so we actually have a, a fairly diverse team um, and we are sort of trying to almost envelop the problem and come at it from different angles and different sides and see what works and what doesn't work, um, what fits together, what applies, what doesn't. But there are some general principles you can we can use for this. So the distinction between whether you want to use a political allocation system that more or less charges a 
tax or a levy on everyone and then forms a committee and delivers the thing or prizes or grants, or whatever. Depends upon um, just inform information about whether you know what you're trying to do. So in situations where we've got a clear sense of what we need to build, we need a bridge or, or we need a platform, you know, we, need, we need a thing done. Um, we've got a clear sense of who will build it. We can, you know, these types of people or this, this company could potentially build that. Um, and we've got a clear sense of who will use it and benefit from it. In those situations, we might want to use some kind of community voting mechanism with a levy or, or whatever. We, um, and you know, a lot of situations are like that. We know what we want to build. We know how much it's going to cost. We know who can do it. And we know who's going to benefit yeah. from it. So just but to jump in there, that's what economists call planning. That's a planning problem. Yeah. yeah. And so, that's, a, that's a nice problem to have. Yeah. But what characterizes that planning problem or the ability to do that planning is complete knowledge. We knew what we're trying to solve. We know how to solve it. We know who can solve it. We know who's going to benefit by how much. When we have perfect information, um, generally a political type planning system will work for the provision of that. Just the, the thing is, most situations aren't like that. Um, we might have, we know what problem we want to solve. We need to get from here to the other side of the river. Um, and we'll offer prizes for whoever can come up with a solution. Now, one solution might be, oh, you need a bridge. But the other one is you might need a, a, a trebuchet, a catapult, or the other one might be you just need, you need a tunnel or another thing. And what what the purpose of a prize, that would, that would suggest a prize or a tender would be the correct way to do that. Um, and you know, we want to see what sort of technologies and solutions come forward. So in that case, we're dealing with missing information or uncertainty or missing, just we, we don't know what technologies will be used to solve the problem. We just know we want it solved. Um, now, I also, I mean, we also might know how much we're willing to spend on it, which might, which will be a portion to a sense of, we know this problem is this big, this is a thousand dollar problem. We know that because these thousand people are suffering one dollar each costs by not having it solved. Therefore, we're willing to spend, you know, $900 solving that problem. Therefore, the tender is for $900 or the prize is for $900. Um, but again, that's, there we had good information about what the absence of a solution to this public goods problem was costing which people, we just didn't know how to solve it. So again, um, you know, the, the question of which mechanisms we use to, to try and solve these problems depends upon what knowledge we've got and what knowledge is missing. And that's that's our starting point. That is always the starting point that we take. And, and that seems to contradict somewhat what a lot of the approach in the blockchain space is in my mind is there seems to be this idea that there is one institutional solution to all of our public goods provision problems. If we can just um, solve the civil attack problem and we can create the exact correct voting mechanism, then that will solve our public goods problem. But when you think of this from first principles, you've got this, you've got this entrepreneurial problem of trying to figure out what public goods you're trying to find, but you've also got this problem of which institution should we deploy to figure that out? And it's, we're going to, I think what we're going to see over time is um, a movement away from a one size fits all institutional solution to this problem to how can we create a mechanism where we've got innovation in those institutions themselves so that we can deploy grants when we need to. How do we decide when to deploy a grant? How do we decide when to have all stakeholder voting? Um, so this is a this is a really tough problem. It's a tough problem, and it has been for a really long time um, in territorial nation states. And now we're trying to solve it where we have open institutional systems, so you don't even really know who your stakeholders are. Um, we have pseudonymous identities, so we don't really know who is being governed or who has a claim on those funds. Um, and at the same time, you've got this obviously decentralization ethos all the way through it. Um, and that makes this a really tough problem to solve. And as we've written many times elsewhere, um, blockchains are a really weird looking institutional technology, right? It doesn't make sense that we would just be able to take corporate governance or just be able to take political governance and apply it to this new system. We need to work out which parts work from each. Um, and that's that sort of discovery process that we're going through at the moment. Okay, so that's really interesting because what we're saying is that you can use blockchains to solve public good problems in the real world, but first we need to experiment with 
those literate in this territory, which is blockchains themselves. And what you've actually written about is how blockchains themselves can solve their own public goods problems. So I think to take a step back and help frame some context around this, um, Darcy, why do blockchain projects even have foundations and treasuries and what are the types of public good problems that we're thinking of? That's a great question and it's an interesting question because I'm not sure that blockchains know why they have treasuries. Um, so there's kind of this precedent now that if you're starting this new project, you need to have some kind of treasury, right? Um, the idea behind that, I think, is that in, in meat space, if we want public goods, we have governments that tax and then they provide those public goods to us. Blockchains don't have governments, right? So there's no taxation in that sense. So what blockchains do is they create, blockchain communities create treasuries. Now, what is a treasury? A treasury is a pool of cryptocurrency that is earmarked for the funding of local public goods within that ecosystem. Now, the that treasury in general is understood to be collectively owned or owned by the community, right? But we should, we should separate out the idea of there's this treasury, there's this pool of funding, and then there's many different ways that we can potentially govern that treasury to allocate it. So in the first instance, treasuries exist to uh, fund local public goods in an ecosystem such as, um, do you need this protocol bug fixed? How are we going to pay someone to do that? Or should we pay someone to do that? Um, do you need some research on long-term scalability, how you're going to build layer two solutions? Do you need to fund um, innovative projects and bridging infrastructure to other projects, right? These are all um, potentially local public goods because they impose sort of positive externalities on the whole ecosystem. And so treasuries should found them, should, should fund them. But of course, this is an entrepreneurial problem. We don't know which things to fund. We don't know how much to fund them, um, when and how. And so what treasuries do is they create different governance mechanisms to try and solve that problem. On the one hand, we might have some sort of benevolent dictator who decides that these are the goods that we should fund or not fund. Um, on the other hand, you might have complete um, on-chain DAO voting where the community decides what to do. And in the middle, you've got all of these mixes of different mechanisms around that. Um, but all of these really are there for this idea of what public goods should we fund and how should we collectively spend this treasury. Um, we might go into a little bit more detail around how we've got, we've got some other theories about why you might have a treasury. It might exist for signaling purposes or as a moat against attack. But I think most blockchains understand them as a mechanism to enable us to fund these local public goods over time and grow the ecosystem. Can I just make a point there, I think, which is interesting, that I mean, we're thinking of treasuries as an obvious, natural and normal thing, but they're actually kind of weird, right? I mean, so nation states don't have treasuries either. Um, what they actually have is huge public liabilities and the ability to raise money through future taxation. Like it's basically an ability to pull the treasury from the future to hold it the present as, as, as large public liabilities, you know, the bond market, the, the, the government bond market, which is then used by existing governments to allocate to whatever they think the public goods that need to be built on of the day. Um, back before we had bond markets, there probably was something closer to a treasury that the king's gold or whatever um, that we kept in the dungeon and protected by dragons um, and things like that. And you know, an individual company or a person or a family has a treasury in their liquid savings that they might sort of allocate. But again, that's, those are all slightly different things. And I, I think you know we're seeing this notion of you know a a, a a, you know, a blockchain, a crypto community is is not a government. It's not a country. It's not a family. It's a sort of it's a more of a civil society comes together to do a thing. So it definitely needs some treasury like mechanism to deal with the public goods or just to de deal with uncertainty. Um, you know what to, of of dealing with things it needs to spend. But it's just well, what's interesting is that it doesn't do it the same way that governments do it. There's no sort of future tax citizens. Um, that that are sitting on chain. Um, I mean, maybe yet. Maybe that is. Maybe that's where we're going in, in terms of 
in you know Ethereum land with King Vitalik might tax, tax future citizens and issue you know Vitalik bonds to fund the local um, Ethereum public goods. That's that could happen. Um, it's just not that's not how the crypto community has decided to proceed at the moment. Well, well, some have decided to proceed with this. So. Um... I mean, I say traditionally, but a lot of treasuries are from a pre-mine, right? So we'll take some of the um, issued tokens, we'll put them in this pool, and then we'll work out what to do with them later. But there is this move towards um, revenue generation or for a tre treasury through transaction fees or block rewards or um, slashing fees or whatever it happens to be. That weirdly looks like a taxation system on different margins, right? So you've got exit and there's not, you don't have that sort of um, uh, compulsion element, but it's interesting that it se we seem to be moving towards that. So treasuries themselves aren't as simple as just, there's this big pool of funds. There's lots of different ways that we can get those funds in there, let alone how we spend them. Um, and that makes it even more complicated in my mind about, well, who, who does own it? Um, it's, it's collectively owned, but these property rights are very confusing. Yeah, I was just going to add to your definition before about public goods in the blockchain space, Darcy, that the blockchain protocols themselves are a public good too. So it's it's funding open source software that has no you know native business model necessarily, as well as what needs to happen within that ecosystem to build and sustain and maintain it in a kind of infrastructural sense. And then to the point about um, taxes, it's, it's kind of ironic. I know that um, from the research I've been doing on Gitcoin that they actually have, the community has proposed a fraud tax, which is kind of taxing um, undesirable or negative behaviour. So how much treasury should a blockchain community spend? As little as possible, actually. Um, so there was that uh, um, that wonderful piece by Vitalik, uh, March, April this year, I can't quite recall, where he actually made the point that uh, the Bitcoin and Ethereum blockchains spend a lot of money every single day on maintaining the security of their blockchains, but actually spend very little money on the provision of, of other public goods. And he seemed to be a, a bit sort of confused by this, you know, why is this happening? You know, why don't they spend more of their money? And I was looking at that thinking, well, yep, that's more or less exactly what I expect should be happening. Because to my mind, a treasury is not only um, here is a, a, a stock of money that we can actually spend at some point on the future on public goods. But the other thing is that uh, a foundation in theory is forever. And the need for public goods is, in theory, forever. So more or less, what you want to do is actually have a stock of money on hand. And uh, um, I always think of them as uh, um, Scrooge McDuck from uh, the Disney character. If you remember in the cartoon, he had a giant vault on top of the hill full of gold and treasure and where everybody could see it. And I think of blockchain treasuries in exactly the same way, a giant vault full of treasure where everybody can see it and everybody knows it's there. And if you want to have an opinion as to the, the value and longevity and commitment of a blockchain to persist into the future, you want to be looking at a giant foundation, a big foundation something that is there solid respectable like in the bad old days they used to build banks they used to look very solid made out of granite um, well you want the same sort of thing in the digital space you want a very clear signal that here is a ton of money waiting to be spent at some point in the future on you the community which is why you should be here and hang around here um, so I, I i think of them very much as as a signal of, of, of quality and longevity. Darcy? Well, uh, I just wonder if we can have both, right? So can we have a large pre-mined treasury that's sitting there with billions of dollars and then have a separate mechanism which is self-funding and sustainable that continues to fund local public goods? So you, you spend what you earn in what the treasury gets in transaction fees each month or something. Um, and then you also have this big multi-billion dollar treasury as well. Um, I, 
I agree that there is a big signaling aspect to this. I just, um, I really wonder how you draw the line because you have to pretend like you're still spending that treasury. Um, and I don't know how that, how that problem goes away. This is going to the, to the recognition that, that the treasury isn't fungible in the sense of just being a big lump of money that, can, that is doing multiple things simultaneously. Um, I think Claire was pointing to this idea of the treasury being a costly signal, just this enormous, it, it's, because what it's doing is it's solving an asymmetric information problem of me, a potential user or a potential entrant into this, into this blockchain community, where I want to know how good is this? How solid is this? How safe is this? And I don't know, right? Now, the insiders in that world might say, well, that's great. It's, it's perfectly safe. Um, trust us. And that's, a, that's cheap talk. Anyone could say that. But what they can do is point to their enormous vault on the hill um, and just go, look, would someone not trustworthy have a vault that big? Um, you know, we can... You know, so that sort of costly signaling aspect of it. Now, if that's the case, then the entire purpose of the very, very large treasury is to be visible and never be spent, but just used purely to communicate trust and reliability and honesty and, and just deep, deep um, backing to anyone who comes near it. Now, so what that means, Darcy, is that in relation to, but we also need public goods, what that means is we need another mechanism then. Um, now, that mechanism could well be a levy or a fee where if we need a bridge, let's raise some money for a bridge. Um, let's agree on that. Let's vote. Um, but again, if we start building bridges out of the out of the other thing, the other thing becomes less. So yep. we, we can't use a big public fund treasury for everything. It has to have it has to be hypothecated. And I think a key insight is that a huge function that performs is signaling, um, ironically, trust. And and so you spend as little as the market will bear. Obviously, you can't not spend anything, but you spend as little as you can get away with. And the less that you can spend, the better the quality signal. And bearing in mind, um, if you are a really good blockchain, other people will come and build stuff on your chain. They will come and build public goods that they want on your chain for free. Um, well, free to you. So it's you know there, there, there's actually the, these these very positive reinforcing network effects which 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 build up. I, I completely agree with the, the big, large signaling effect. And what's, what's interesting is what we are seeing is a bunch of mechanisms that are actually incentivizing that ongoing funds that are raised to be spent. So you might have this big um, treasury that doesn't get spent, but there's a bunch of protocols out there where you might have a month-long budget period where a portion of the block rewards or flashing fees or whatever go into a pool that money is spent in some way on public goods. And if it's not spent in that month, it's burnt. Yes. Or some of it is burnt or whatever, which is the opposite. So you've got this big treasury that you're not spending to show, look at how big my treasury is. And then you've got this other mechanism, which is much more like a tax and spend budgetary <laughs> style. Like So um, a, lot, a lot of organizations have a similar dichotomy is that they artificially segment some of their spending into capital expenditure and some of their expenditure into operating expenditure. Now, of course, generally speaking, money is fungible. So that's actually a mental accounting mechanism. So what we're going to say is we're going to spend this money um, or we're going to burn it. Um, but that's more or less, a, we're not spending the money on ourselves. So that, that, that in itself is another signal. Um, and of course, in the economics literature, we've always, speak, we've always spoken of costly signals as being burning money. But this must be one of the few instances where burning money is actually institutionalized. Um, now, we've all seen the story of these rich stockbrokers lighting their cigars with a, 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 you know, a $100 bill and all this sort of stuff. If you do that in the fiat world, you're actually breaking the law. That's a crime. You could be arrested. Um, but of course, in, in, well, and certainly you wouldn't want to burn Australian money because it's actually made out of, out of plastic and polymers. But um, um, in, the, in, the, in the crypto world, it's actually institutionalized that money is burnt and money is burnt to provide signals to the market is there that you, you're not actually going to run away with this money yourself. Um, so, you know, all these positive reinforcement mechanisms are, are always there in place. And uh, it's, it's actually very fascinating to sort of try and un untangle 
how the system works. But the irony is, Kelsey, I think, is that if the signaling theory is correct, I think you should more or less hold a largely undiversified treasury. So what is in your treasury should be your native token or mostly your native token. Now, obviously, in your treasury, I mean, you, you may need to spend Ethereum or Bitcoin or something else. So you may need to have non-native tokens on hand for the purposes of transactions. But generally speaking, I think in the signaling model, you want to have your own native token in place. And of course, a lot of people get a bit nervous about this because in finance theory, we always say don't have an undiversified portfolio. But in the signaling theory, you should have a largely undiversified portfolio. So the idea that we have that this is a big signal actually has a practical consequence as to what do you say to these foundations? Because we've seen in recent times a lot of people talking about diversification. Um, some diversification, yes. Lots of diversification, not so much, I think. Jason? Yeah, so it just occurred to me, I think, that um, Bitcoin doesn't sort of have a big obvious foundation. I mean, there is a, there is a Bitcoin foundation there, but there's not a huge treasury. And then it occurred to me, no, there is. Satoshi. Satoshi built a foundation by holding a million Bitcoins and then just going dark up onto the hill, refusing to come down and reveal who he, she, or they are, but just sitting there with their very public treasury of a, of a million Bitcoins um, in that sort of sense. And I mean, that's a, that's a massively undiversified portfolio. So there's, so there's lots of different ways it can come about. It doesn't have to be designed right from the beginning. We, we can sort of um, engineer, I mean, um, Gus was sort of pointing towards this idea that a lot of, almost all of the treasuries that we're seeing now are pre-mines. They were, that's how they got there. Yeah. It was this enormous pre-mine and then dump it into a treasury and then we'll figure out what it is later on. But, um, you know, however they get there, that's, that's the function of them. I guess the argument against not diversifying then is, um, well, so the main rationale for diversifying in part is because when you need your treasury, the most, it might be in a time of crisis and the value of your own token. So your treasury token gets, your value drops rapidly um, and you don't have the money to, to spend and solve whatever that problem is. But I mean, in the signaling theory that we're putting forward, I mean, you're not going to spend it anyway. So it doesn't matter if the value is dropped. It's sort of the, the overall principle. Yeah, I was just going to add to that around runway as well. Obviously, uh, projects have lived and died by um, keeping potentially too too much in crypto when there's a bear market and crypto is no longer worth what it was. And, and those that actually did liquidate some of their treasury had enough runway to survive that and, and kind of resurrect and be back. So, Darcy, you've um, written... A proposal for a new model of grant funding. What is that that you've that you've outlined? Uh, well, so Chris Berg and I wrote a post um, on a potential proposal for grant funding, and the rationale behind that is that we have a lot of examples in the real world of where either governments or private philanthropists or foundations have tried to solve this program problem of how to create a grant program. Um, and the, the problems that they're trying to solve there are twofold. One of them is this knowledge problem that we've talked about, which is you don't know what to fund or who to fund. And the second problem is how do you ensure that those people you have funded, that their incentives align with the objectives of the treasury itself? So you've got this knowledge problem and you've got this incentive problem over time. Now, our proposal is, well, we should be funding philanthropists or individuals to run their own grants programs rather than doing a one-size-fits-all grants program. So imagine if all token holders within a particular ecosystem, there's some sort of um, budgetary period or grant period where they fund five philanthropists, right? They don't fund projects, they fund people or teams, right? And the token holders may want to vote on who those people are then those philanthropists go and run their own grant program. Some of them will spend the money on themselves. 
Some of them will go and create a prize. Some of them will um, do many of these different mechanisms to achieve the objectives that they see the Treasury has. Now, this may be great because we have then lots of different ways that we're trying to solve this problem instead of one size fits all. But we don't have any feedback. So maybe at the end of that budgetary period, the token holders could vote again and rank those philanthropists in how they achieve the objectives in that period and compensate them somewhat based on that. Now you have more aligned incentives between those philanthropists and the treasury itself. Now, this isn't a perfect ecosystem in any means, right? We could, um, you could have problems around um, capture and so on and so forth. And you might want to implement even more mechanisms into it to align those incentives and to discover that information. But the principle here is that we need to treat grants programs as something that we don't know how to solve and that we need to be developing mechanisms that get as much information in as possible um, and try to align the incentives. And this is, this is one example of that that, that we've proposed. Um, it, it's really treating this as an entrepreneurial problem. This is the same problem that venture capitalists face. It's the same problem that um, large foundations who have a lot of um, money face. How do we achieve our objectives under uncertainty um, when we can't do the things ourselves? Okay, so something I'm fascinated about on this is obviously um, resilience in these systems and as an adverse, I do a lot of looking at vulnerabilities. There was a great post recently about um, GEV, so governance extractable value and how um, although we introduce governance mechanisms, mechanisms and processes to solve problems, they can also introduce them. So how do you protect against dictatorship or disorder? Uh, that is a great question as well. So this is from a paper that um, Dictatorship and Disorder that uh, myself and Chris Berg and Aaron Lane, hopefully I'll put up before this podcast is out. Um, and this is, okay, on one hand, we can think about treasury governance as trying to solve a um, that knowledge problem of how do we figure out what to fund under uncertainty. That's one problem. But I think something actually precedes that problem. And that is, is the Treasury robust to opportunism from different actors within the Treasury? And what I mean by that is, um, how can we trust as an ecosystem that the Treasury um, is not likely to be hacked, that it hasn't been siphoned off for private interest, that there isn't collusion in the voting process, whatever it happens to be. Um, so what we do in this paper is we take a framework from uh, New Comparative Economics, which says, well, Every institution is imperfect, and what every institution or governance structure is trying to do is it's trying to minimise two basic types of costs. On one hand, we have the costs of dictatorship. They're the costs that insiders, effectively in a, in a government sense, governments will expropriate the property. Right? In crypto space, those dictatorship costs are around, let's just say there was a founder's multi-sig or even just a founder's individual contract controlling the treasury. And on the other hand, we have disorder costs. So um, they're the costs that individuals impose costs on each other. If we have a DAO, we might have some collusion between private actors. Um, some of these things might be quite subtle and hard to detect after the fact. And if we take a new comparative economics perspective on this, um, every institution tries to minimize these costs in different ways. So if we move from a DAO where everything is on-chain automatically executed through voting to a system where you might have some opinion voting, but then a centralized committee executes that funding request, you may have reduced some disorder costs, but you've got yourself some more dictatorship costs. That committee, that so that small group executing that transaction might be captured, they might work in their own interests, they might decide not to execute it. Um, so this is really a framework in trying to, how can we compare different treasury mechanisms, um, governance mechanisms based on that? So we'll, we'll put a link to the paper down in the, um, down in the show notes after this, but it's just this basic idea of dictatorship and disorder. So who is a qualified philanthropist in the model you propose and how, how do you see decision-making working in an effective way? So I think last time 
were on the excellent podcast recording with um, Jaya Clara Brecky, and you mentioned a line which I really appreciated about, you know, oftentimes these communities are extremely focused on governance as voting, so decision-making mechanisms. But who should be making decisions and what are other ways we can think about governance beyond just um, a vote, which is oftentimes by the time it gets to that point and we see the vote in the transparent way, it's 99% in favour for some kind of basic obvious thing like paying out a, you know, a round of grants or something rather than a more deliberative process. There's several ways of, of thinking about this. Um, the, the one way is just competence. You want decisions made by the, the person who is most expert or most competent to be doing it. That's a, the specialization model, right? Now, if that's the case, you've got the problem of how to find who is the most worthy and competent and capable person, put them in that position and then give them decision-making power. Um, that's, a, that's a corporation, by the way. That's, that's, that's exactly what a company is, 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 is solves for that mechanism. But the other thing to think about is you also want the person with the best information to be making these decisions. And the, you know, in the sense that you want them to be able to evaluate the specific needs and the specific constraints and then execute on that local information. Um, that's a market. A market does that um, if effectively very well. And you know, so you know, any sort of, any question of, you know, who is the, or who or what is the philanthropic mechanism or person we want in this role is going to be some combination of that which has the most expertise in being a good philanthropist and, or a good decision maker around you know, this. And you know, that might be something that they have to learn to do or someone um, respected in the community or someone has deep knowledge of the needs of the community. Um, and again, that, that's where voting might function in finding that person. Um, but you also want to have a situation where that person is able to effectively find and make use of the best information that they have. And like that's that's the hard problem, is sort of navigating that space because any one particular mechanism, a hierarchy, a market, whatever, is optimized to one type of solution. You know, find the most expert person or get the best information. So uh, this is this is why this is hard. The problem is that this does often look like centralization to blockchain communities and that is, um, it offends their purity, right? So we saw recently that um, with the Uniswap Treasury, they went and funded, um, what do they call it? The DeFi Education Fund, which is a $20 million fund that went to a um, group, I believe, of, um, yeah, it, it was basically, um, a kind of lobbying group in a way. It was focused on policy in the US, right? A $20 million group. Now, as part of that, it even explicitly said in the Uniswap governance proposal that they should have significant autonomy to spend that money how they wish. Now, I think that hurt a lot for the community, right? And then that group actually decided to um, exchange half of the 20 million um, out of uni into USDC or USDT or whatever it was, right? But I think on some margins, we're going to have to have what looks like centralization at various points because you need those groups to be able to put to use the knowledge that they have, right? And that's not giving it all to one group. And this is what Chris and I's model is trying to get across. Maybe we shouldn't have given $20 million to one group, but the principle itself of maybe giving $2 million to 10 groups to each decide what to do is perhaps one of the ways forward we can get here as long as there is some, at the end of the day, there's some feedback or check mechanism where the vote, the overall token holders can kick those people out, right? It always needs to come back at some point in my mind to that collective democratic choice but we need to be able to give some people some autonomy. You can't put everything to a vote. It... So Gordon Tullock, the, uh, one of the founders of public choice theory in the, uh, must, must be in the late 1960s, wrote a book called The Organization of Inquiry. And part of the thing that he was talking about then is how do you give out research grants? 
Now, at the moment, what governments do is that they have these giant committees and you have to put in applications of like hundreds of pages and these, these giant committees try to work out what's going to be good or bad. And, you know, they, they come up with some sort of very bureaucratic process of making a decision. And what Gordon Tullock actually said was all of that was a waste of time, that what you should do is simply go on track record. Um, so you take a whole bunch of people who have done well in the past, and he said, and give them a small grant. Don't give a lot of money to everybody. Just give a lot of people a small amount of money based on track record and just see what happens um, and just follow it through. And at the end of it all, decide, do, did, did what you get? Uh, uh, um, was it good? Was it bad? Do you not want to go? And if you liked what you got, just give them money again. Um, now, there's a certain amount of path dependency in that and pre-existing privilege that some people might not like. But at the same time, um, rather than agonizing over um, all these, these information problems where you don't really know, and especially in this particular space, is that all software by definition is innovation. And trying to have a bureaucratic process deliver innovation is actually problematic in and of itself. So more or less his, his, his mechanism was decide something easy and simple and just do it and see what comes out the other end. Um, now, that's very similar to, to, to what you and Chris have sort of proposed, Darcy, um, but, but even a, a simplification again. Jason? Yeah, can I just add on that? I think um, one of the sort of things to consider is what, what is the purpose of voting? What does voting do in, in these types of contexts? And again, there's, no, there's not a simple answer here. I mean, voting... On the one hand, is collective decision making, aggregation of individual preferences, you know, the wisdom of crowds type of, if you know, if we all make the decision together, we're smarter sort of thing, and a lot of people believe that, and in some circumstances, it is true. But it's it's not the only or even the major purpose of voting. Um, one of the other things you can do with voting is just go look. We'll just grab our our local dictator or our local expert, and we'll give them enormous amounts of power, but we need a mechanism to correct mistakes. We need a mechanism to, if they get out of control, or if this thing start, if this if this experiment goes horribly sideways. Now, voting is fantastic for that. Like voting is a mechanism that has community legitimacy. Looks at it and goes, "Wow, that was stupid. Let's let's reverse that." And that's the classic, you know, parliamentary democracy model of voting. You have two parties, um, and you use voting not to select one. You use voting to remove one, and then the other one goes in. Then you keep them in until they're sick of them, and they. And then you use voting to get rid of them, and then the other one goes back in again. And you know, that's I mean, a lot of people think of voting that you know that we use voting in political systems for collective decision making as a good thing, but mostly we use it to remove um, horrible mistakes that we've made in the past um, over and over again. And you know, in the in the crypto space, that might be what we do again. We just you know, in, in Darcy and Chris's model. We just find a few people that we believe are amazing and, you know, godlike creatures that will only make good decisions and we give them enormous amounts of power to create public goods. Um, and then we just have a voting mechanism for if, when that goes horribly wrong, we need to find some new godlike creatures to, to give enormous amounts of power to create public goods. And that, that might be fine. Like that, that might be as good as it gets. I think the whole issue of how do we balance between dictatorship costs and disorder costs has been the history of collective decision making um, and governance over the thousands of years. These mechanisms that we put in place to sort of allow effective decisions to be made, but then not allow decisions to be made not in our interests is actually what governance is all about. And what we've been trying to do in our research program over the last while is apply that to this new environment created by this trustless technology or this technology that industrializes trust. Um, so it's a variation on a theme um, that we've been doing, trying to solve the same problem just in a new context. Yeah, it's, it's really timely and, and relevant research. And I think some some ideas that emerge just kind of go to show that there's nothing new under the sun. But Darcy, I really like that you pointed out, you know, what's actually been happening in some of these communities on the ground as well. And I know that these kind of council models where people get voted in and out are seen in um, 
in Uniswap and Synthetics and the Spartan Council. And then Gitcoin kind of drew on that idea of like what have people done in the past with their retroactive airdrop of governance tokens. So that's kind of what Sync proposed around, um, you know, can you, people that have done things before, can you give them more things and then that would do more things. So in saying that, final question, what are you excited about in either blockchain communities and treasury management or blockchain-based treasury management in other settings? I'm excited about all of it, but um, the I, I'm excited about taking this decentralized tech that we have so that it enables us to have these new mechanisms like DAOs with odd decision and aggregation rules like quadratic voting and commitment voting and so on, but combining those with existing mechanisms that we know that can work. Things like grants and prizes and things that have existed for centuries. The combination between underlying decentralized power, enabling and choosing between these institutions that we already know work in different contexts. Um, so I, this, as, as I think we started with, this actually kind of, I think, pushes back against where a lot of the crypto space is going at the moment with designing a sort of one size fits all system for a particular ecosystem. I think what we're going to see is much more um, polycentric systems within a particular ecosystem. So some overarching mechanism that enables lots of innovation around how we should solve these problems. Yeah, I'm excited for the same reason Darcy is here, but just as a social scientist, what we're about to see in the next few years is a thousand years worth of, of experimentation take place in a few years that we can observe it all up close. Um, you know, this is an incredible just test bed for governance research and experimentation. Now, you know, real things are being built in the real world um, here, and that's that's fascinating. But as academics, this is a r very rare window on this amazing live experiment um, that is happening before our eyes and we are here to study it so that's what excites me so i i think the the very exciting thing is actually being able to go out to foundations and actually say to them um give them some guidance as to how better organize their affairs as to actually fast track the development of what is already a fast track technology rolling out so i think the the ability to actually have a practical impact upon the world and the practical impact upon the rollout of this technology is very exciting and then at the same time reflecting on things that actually deepen our understanding of what has gone before so um, as a as, as a person who wants to see the technology succeed um, being in a position to help it succeed and at the same time again as a social scientist understand the world better uh, what's going on around us yeah awesome and we're getting some incredible opportunities to work with uh, significant uh, projects and protocols and significant um, treasuries and grant pro programs on that which is pretty cool so thank you to our guests and thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and links to um, the number of articles mentioned and get in touch if you have ideas or feedback on the podcast at rmitblockchain.io.